Congress and employees at the Department of Veterans Affairs say they've heard the talk from the new VA leaders about their plans for new diversity and inclusion initiatives. Now they're calling on VA to walk the walk. They're concerned the new initiatives won't trickle down to the local VA facilities and mid-level managers. Some might be resistant to change. We get more now from Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. Veterans Affairs Secretary Dennis McDonough has ordered a four-month review of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility within the department. VA task forces are examining the department's internal and external processes, and they're creating metrics that will track progress and measure success. At the very least, Congress and VA employees see the Biden administration and McDonough talking about diversity and inclusion more than their predecessors. But they're looking for VA to translate the talk into concrete actions within the department, the kind that trickles down into the corners of the organization. Mark Ticano is the chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee. Let me be clear, no matter what administration is in charge of the executive branch, no matter who is the secretary, Congress expects the department to prioritize workforce diversity, equity, and inclusion for all workers. I recognize that we are still in the first few months of the secretary's tenure at the department, and I know both from private conversations and his public statements that his values align with ensuring a diverse and inclusive VA workforce. Dr. Sheila Elliott is the president of the American Federation of Government Employees local that represents workers at the VA Medical Center in Hampton, Virginia. Sometimes we're able to work together to make change and see progress, but far too often we hear wonderful talk from VA headquarters but fail to see grand ideas become reality on the ground. Elliott says the intentions may be good, but good intentions often fail to make a real difference. They really need to be taken seriously at the facilities, from the VA central office to the vision, right down to the local facilities. You know, we had some training on reasonable accommodations within the past year, but I have not seen any difference in the way the employees are being processed through that program. And so that tells me that we're checking off boxes, but we're not really addressing the root cause. And our managers and our human resources people are not buying into it. And that needs to change. External veterans organizations see resistance within pockets of VA, too. Victor Lagrune is the director and chairman of the Black Veterans Empowerment Council. These are very concerning issues. And I know that the VA has been working on these issues. But to be honest and frank, we're, we haven't done enough historically. This goes beyond the last previous two administrations. This is a system-wide issue. And it's become a cultural issue where there are people within the system who have worked there long enough that they don't buy into change, right? And we do recognize that some people know that they can wait out an administration. So we do need to have the system in place that no matter who the secretary is, who the president is, this body can be ensured that our veterans are being treated in an equitable way. VA may be reasonably diverse. 43% of employees are not white and 61% are women. But VA, like many other federal agencies, often struggles to promote minorities to top leadership positions. Black and African-American women make up almost 17% of the VA workforce, but less than 6% of senior career leadership positions. White men make up 23% of the VA workforce, but almost half of the department's senior career leaders. AFGE collected some data as well and found that over 40,000 black employees applied for a VA management position in 2019. Two and a half percent received the promotion. 
Another 17,000 black employees applied for a VA management job last year. Again, 2.5% received the positions. Harvey Johnson is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Resolution Management, Diversity and Inclusion, and he acknowledges VA could do more to promote and prime diverse candidates for top leadership jobs. None of us got the position we're at without being groomed or mentored. You know, so I think we have to look at how are we selecting people for the uh, Senior Executive Candidate Development Program? How are we selecting them for Leadership BA, Aspiring Leader Program, and other leadership programs? I think we have to look at how we're mentoring and grooming people at the lower grades, I would say, you know, up to 13, because that's where we start to see the disparity. When you get to GS 13 and above, that's where we tend to have less than favorable representation. Elliott says VA might be on the right track, but it needs to pick up some speed with some of its actions. She says she and her colleagues are still surprised sometimes when they see a person of color take on a new role in upper management. We've had years and years of anti-employee, anti-union animus. Those people still work in the department. Within the last four years, more people were brought in. And those people have those same sorts of ideas. And despite the fact that our president and our secretary, their heart is really in making change, there is resistance there that we see from central office to the vision down to the facilities. There have been times when we have made positive gains. Sometimes it's been something that management really wants to do to help the employee But that's not often the case many times. Sometimes it just takes a long time to get things processed through. But oftentimes, if there's something that management really wants to get done, and they'll come to us and they'll work with us because they need to check off that box. I want to see a real vigorous, real relationship, a real partnership between the staff, between the unions, between HR, between management, and so forth. Congress, employees, and other stakeholders acknowledge VA equal employment opportunity and diversity and inclusion programs don't often have enough resources or bandwidth. VA's Office of Resolution Management, Diversity, and Inclusion has one person who conducts technical assistance reviews at hundreds of VA's facilities across the country. The office recently held focus groups with employees and others at the Kansas City Medical Center. And Johnson says the medical center is hiring a dedicated diversity and inclusion officer because of that review. He says employee engagement scores rose at the facility, and he attributes the increase to some of the work that his office did there. Johnson says VA ideally would have more employees available to visit facilities and conduct those reviews and focus groups. The department has five reviews planned and nine others in the works. VA's Equal Employment Opportunity Division is also hamstrung by an arbitrary cap that limits the number of EEO counselors at the department. VA currently has 38 for a workforce of over 400,000 employees. Those EEO counselors often struggle to keep up with the number of formal and informal complaints they get each year. VA employees filed over 2,800 formal equal employment opportunity complaints in 2020, and the VA resolved a little over half of them. Here's Takano. Let me acknowledge that the direction and plans of the secretary and the department to address workforce diversity, inclusion, and equity is, an ongo- is going in the right direction, in my opinion. And I am impressed with your testimony and that of colleagues. But for many years, 
there clearly should have been a much higher level of priority placed on this issue. And not only does the lack of staff and support translate into workplace problems not being fully addressed, but without the commitment of resources, many other important and innovative ideas, including those described by our other witnesses today, will not be implemented or followed through on. Nicole Ligrisco, Federal News Network. Check out Nicole's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. (laughs) Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. 
And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees 
And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.